Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. Hey, 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 hey. Those are vampires. You don't get to insult them. I was just... You're not a vampire. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, from Twitter to Fox News to most state legislatures, everyone is worked up about critical race theory. So let me ask you, how has critical race theory hurt you and your loved ones? <laughs> my, my self-esteem has dropped dramatically since I learned that I might be white. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> No, you know how it's affected me the most is that CRT in my little niche of psychology stands for cognitive reflection task. It's like a particular measure that people use a lot. Right. And now now it's just meaningless. That's how it's harmed me directly. Arguably, it was meaningless as a measure before. (laughs) That's only because you got them all wrong. (laughs) (laughs) So today we are going to wade into the debate over critical race theory, I guess. Something we're both experts in. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's a big caveat. <laughs> just, just, just remember that this is segment one because, you know, we got a little bit of flack for, for our loosey-goosey treatment of the lab leak theory. <laughs> Which was a fucking opening question, people. <laughs> like, and, and they attributed to us, this was on Reddit. On Reddit yeah. They attributed to us like, like some strong, firm stance on the lab leak and I was like, what the fuck i know one one dear redditor was like did they not read this paper and then they, they put like a <laughs> nature paper and, and he's like, like no. i'm surprised they didn't mention this paper <laughs> for an opening question I, that I'm to riff about i honestly honestly had zero you know like zero readings <laughs> like ever done on the lab leak theory which you know maybe is irresponsible but it was fucking I, it was like you said it was an open question i wasn't didn't even know it was going to be <laughs> A segment. It was like the ghost thing also where like <laughs> uh, on Reddit for the first like 30 comments, that's all anybody was talking about. Exactly. Like, didn't we talk about it for like five minutes or something? I don't know. I don't, I don't even remember. But, but I, what I do remember is it's not even clear to me what I like, w- the, whether the lab leak hypothesis in my mind was an accidental leak or whether it was some malicious intent or like what the... Co- no, don't take any of that seriously. I don't. Yeah, no, I definitely not for me either. I thought it was a funny opening question just because everybody was talking. Like, actually, yeah. I think the reason I was laughing when I did when I came up with the idea to do it, which was right on the spot, is because of how like uninformed we were. About it. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I thought we made that clear. That that should be the real disclaimer that Liza starts the episode with. Yeah, they <laughs> don't. You guys don't know what the fuck. <laughs> <laughs> they never have.
<laughs> like I said, you know, I know about four things. Yeah. And we covered that territory a long time right. ago. By episode nine, we had covered <laughs> all the things we know. And now it's all just bullshit. Right. Um, I will say that I did do a little more reading about critical race theory. And, um, and we also have something funny to talk about, which I guess relates to critical race theory. Although I think... It doesn't. Part, the yeah. tangential relation is part of the discussion, perhaps. Uh, which is a paper called on... Ha- <laughs> it sounds like one of our um, things that we did for Journal of Controversial Ideas, the abstract, yeah. on having whiteness. <laughs> yeah. Whiteness is, is a condition one first acquires and then one has a malignant, parasitic-like condition to which, quote... White people have a particular susceptibility. That's the first sentence of the abstract. Um, so we're going to talk a little bit about that paper because it was, it was the target of some ire. Yes. Um, and then in the second segment, uh, we are talking about the philosopher L.A. Paul's book. <laughs> I'm doing air quotes on book because we didn't yeah. read the book. It's like uh, white but people. The, book. Idea, yeah, on transformative experiences. Uh, transformative experience, I guess, is the title of the book. Yeah. We read some. We prepared. I it. yeah. I actually downloaded the book and read a chunk of it, but then yes, also uh, the pro C oh, was very helpful, and it is a very simple idea that yeah. I'm excited to talk about because I think it's uh, it's simple, but then also profound and true, uh, and also and also sometimes wrong. So we'll talk about that. <laughs> yeah. Well, you, Dave is a. <laughs> it provoked a violent. Uh, opposition and uh, and kind of animosity. I thought you liked Lori Paul too. So Lori Paul is my friend. Don't yeah. say anything about that. Um, let's <laughs> uh, okay. Let's talk. I want to just I want to load my objection. I would lodge not load lodge my objection here to talking about any of this stuff. I feel like um, we have to, but I resent it all the way. Right. This but, is your fault, <laughs> listeners. I resent having to talk about critical race theory. But uh, I, oh, I wanted to ask you, oh, sorry, oh, yeah. just quickly. I wanted to ask you, have you ever taken one of those 23andMe or any of the, like, like how white are you? Um, I haven't. Because uh, I feel like this is just an empirical question. We could, the degree yeah. of evilness that one has could be directly. <laughs> yeah, no, I think I'm mostly non-white. If you look, like, I haven't done the actual DNA analysis, but I, I think I'm like one quarter white. I'm like, uh, uh, I think like two fifths, and I don't know how the math worked out, but two fifths Native American, uh, Cherokee, probably Cherokee, possibly, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, two ninths um, black, and yeah, and then you know, obviously some Ashkenazi Jew, but right, right, yeah, but no Sephardic, as I heard you saying clearly. <laughs> I would love to be Sephardic. All Ashkenazi Jews have Sephardic envy. You know, like, who wouldn't want to be, like, a little cooler, a little tougher, a little, you know. Right, right. Mediterranean, you know. Right. You should do it. You should You should do, like, a 23andMe. Um, yeah, but then, like, like all, like, I would learn that I'm not related to, like, most of the people I think I'm related to. <laughs> uh, I am, I, you know. Did you do one? Yeah, I did a National Geographic one years ago, um, and it, it was mostly expected. I have a lot of, uh, so a quarter of my family's Lebanese, so there's Mediterranean that goes back there, 
And but I'm I it came out like around twenty percent Native American, so Indigenous South American. Yeah. So I feel like I get I get to you know say some things that you're not allowed to say as we talk about your ancestors. <laughs> like a couple of your white ancestors raped it. Like so I mean, it's actually it's, it's like the battle is in my own genes. You know, like I don't yeah. know what to believe. Like, do I identify with the rapists or yeah. the rape the yeah. rapees? Exactly. Um, a question we all we, have to uh, ask ourselves. <laughs> I laugh to keep from crying. Um, all right. So sh- should we start with on having whiteness or should we start with critical race theory? Well, I was going to ask you a serious question or a somewhat okay. serious, depending on, you know, like what the, how relative to what we've been talking about. <laughs> what like when if somebody asked you what is critical race theory, what would you say? It's, it's yeah, it's exact. It's exact right question. And it's one that I was asking uh, Nikki and Bella. <clears throat> so my answer would be would have been. Critical race theory is, uh, this is my, the, the naive-ish answer, that it is a, a loose field of study about how uh, institutional structures have uh, particularly affected people of a certain race, right? So like stru- the, the notion that there is structural racism and that identifying the sources of, of those structures and institutions is a way to, to like get rid of some of the nefarious creepy racism of the country i and even that's more educated than i probably could have given you like 24 hours ago <laughs> right <laughs> i mean I, I, we've talked about it a lot on the show mostly just making fun of the like panic about critical yeah. race theory um from people like f- former guest of the podcast james Lindsay. but um but i had always associated it with just critical theory in general, which has kind of Marxist elements and with related to like feminist critique of rights, feminists like standpoint epistemology. But in this case, it's focused on race. And as you say, the way like racism and uh, exploitation and oppression are baked into the structures and the systems. And you know, even like the founding moral or political principles and ideals of of uh, America or Western civilization, because like it reminded me, and and I think this is right from the little research that I did, also within the last twenty four hours. Remember that paper by Paul Butler that we did an episode on, a critique okay. of rights and yeah, the yeah, Gideon yeah. case. Um, which established like the Miranda rights. And and there was a critique of how these rights are in some ways more of an obstacle than, uh, you know, a stepping stone to the kind of equality that we want. And one of the things I learned is that critical race theory, you know, one of its founding members is Derek Bell. And he has a famous critique of Brown versus the Board of Education on the uh, along those same lines, I don't. We won't get into like the reasoning behind this critique of rights, but like I think that is what it is. Um, I think it also emphasizes the importance of narratives in the development of like how we understand, you know, society, how we understand our self conception as people, as a nation. So it it focuses on narratives and not just this illusion that we can get like an objective picture of history or something like that. I think it says, and I think they're right about this, that there's no ideology free way of doing history. Um, You know, and that will lead to a kind of 1619 project and the whole controversy over that, which maybe we'll talk about, right? Because we're experts. (laughs) Uh, But but I want to talk about this first 
part of it, which you mentioned as well, this idea that it focuses on structural, systemic racism that it's like baked into our institutions and concepts rather right. than on individual pre- prejudice, like people yeah. being racist or whatever. Like that's kind of not the point. And yet it's right. like, it's being, you know, associated with almost the opposite kind of that's view. That's exact, exactly what I wanted to, to bring up next too, because... You know, even its roots in 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 um, uh, critical legal theory, which is just about the laws themselves as these institutions that that might be unequal. Um, the whole point, to me, always seemed like the whole point of the the notion of systemic racism or systematic injustice is that this is not about individuals who are acting with intentional prejudice, but rather about the systems. And like you say. Look, like I know there's a lot of slippage. There's no, you know, there's no like dictionary definition of what this stuff is, but to to use it as a catch all to include the opposite of the things that, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like seems like really bad. And so so all of this legislation that's just like, you know, we just don't want our kids being told that being that they're racist or that being white is bad. Right. And it's like I at some point all this shit got so conflated you know, perhaps intentionally, as some people have said, um, to as a sort of propaganda machine against the discussion of any of this stuff. Right. Right. That's what's so frustrating about it. Yeah. Right. Like it gets kind of lumped in with like the Robin D'Angelo right. kind of like, I'm so disgusting because I'm white and I'm so privileged <laughs> right. and I just need to just admit how racist I am just by virtue of being white. It's like you said, it's not just not critical race theory. It like is the opposite. It's focusing yeah. on the wrong things. It's You're not supposed to focus on your like complicity or your guilt, except to the extent that you are benefiting from unfair structures and institutions right. that you could then actually try to, you know, change. Uh, and change your understanding of. And, and to the extent that we have like individual issues, you know, like if, if it's not to say that people aren't prejudiced in real life, but like they could just be the result of being like brought up in these structures. Like it could be the right. consequence, not the cause of inequality. Yeah, I mean, um, I'm sure a lot of critical race theorists think that plenty of people are prejudiced, like yeah. actively, like explicitly racist. And, but it's just not the focus of the theory. In fact, right. it's like trying to say, no, don't look at that because that's not the point. You could have everybody, uh, you know, consciously prejudice free and these institutions would still be biased and, un- and unjust right. in, in these racist ways. And that's why, like, it's also annoying that implicit bias training sort of gets wrapped up in all this, too, where it's like, no, that's all. That's also kind of not the point of, of critical race theory, like that. I'd be more comfortable with the conscious prejudice view uh, than even the implicit bias. Like, that seems like the wrong level of analysis, like two levels down. (laughs) Well, yeah. Yeah. I mean, to me, they seem more equidistant from the point because they're still focused on individuals. Um, But, yeah, it's a little even more ridiculous where, um, okay, we just cure this. We, We leave. So here's the part where you say intentional and, um, it's it's being conceived of both by its critics and sometimes people who want to embrace the mantle, even though they're uh, pressing this other line that we just have to atone for our whiteness and uh, and just be conscious of our privilege and all that. Like 
it's it's all it's it it seems like maybe it's not a total coincidence that this way of understanding it leaves the structures and institutions in place uh, yeah. that we have and just focuses on getting everybody to have like epiphanies and <laughs> or just feel bad and guilty about the past and and it's like somehow the way of understanding it like the correct way that would actually threaten or or challenge like a lot of the right. institutions that kind of preserve the status quo, the structural structural relations. I'm st- if I start talking like a communist, you know, I can't. Those things are just ignored and sidelined and made not the point. And yeah. conscious or unconscious level, that's what ends up happening, you know. I don't know. I think that's kind of interesting. I gave you a paper in Harper's by this historian, Matt Karp, who was uh, talking more about the 1619 project than critical race theory. But he, yeah, he, he paints a really complex picture of, of how this might work. I think, you know, it's, it's compelling, as yeah, it I, I would say. It was a good article that is uh, frustrating if, if you're reading it for any answers about, <laughs> about <what laughs> no, there's what's no really link. going on. I also read a piece in The Atlantic that covered some of the, um, we'll put links to all these, uh, that covered some of the, the controversy about the 1619 Project and like the factual sort of yeah. the issue that historians had with some of the facts as they were presented. And my first thought was, well... This is the kind of stuff that like, yeah, historians should argue about because they're like details that like matter to historians. But I wasn't sure how much it mattered to the project as a whole, other than just the general point that if some details are wrong, then people might dismiss you altogether. But they are going to dismiss you altogether (laughs) anyway. Um, But there was this point and when you brought up narrative, it made me think of this, that there did seem to be some selective... uh, or distorting ways of presenting the historical facts that that fit with the narrative, which again, I don't know that you can help, but but uh, one of them in particular was this notion that uh, the United States entered into the Revolutionary War in large part because they were afraid uh, that England was turning against slavery, and so they wanted their independence, and that does seem to be not very true at all yeah and it's something that they refuse to sort of correct and you know like i believe this historian um uh sean willens who wrote this piece in the atlantic like like it seems that he has the receipts to show that this is just sort of a misinterpretation of what was actually going on no and one of the uh i read about this too um there was a somebody who was a fact checker for the uh, 1619 yeah, right. project and she said look this just isn't true there's no documented number one like you know it wasn't clear that the british were turning against slavery at that right. time and number two it just wasn't you can't find documents that support that and right. um and and plenty of documents that focus on many other things as as the primary motivation yeah. so like yeah. so yeah like i i think like you said though you know, this is how history is always taught. The idea that we were taught like real objective history and this is like biased (laughs) history, that's crazy, right? Like there are going to be these distortions that as you say, should be battled over and corrected when they're, um, when they're wrong. And, you know, the New York times did walk it back a little bit. It still, it bothers me. Uh, Like, honestly, it bothers me because I don't think you need that to to make the point. You don't need to rely on the twisting things into the narrative, right? Uh, twisting facts into the narrative. Like, there's plenty, 
Like there's plenty there to criticize. And I think that's the point of the of the um Harper's article that you sent me, which is yeah. like you can't you can't use history this way. Like like it's so complex. There's so many causal factors. You're gonna make judgments about what to focus on and what not to focus on. But one thing that you'll never have is a neat story that right. fits something like a grand narrative like this. And so what do you do with that? Well, I think the the Harper's author wants to argue that we should use it sort of to be more forward-facing. Like yeah. the, the arguments should be more about how to move forward. And I agree. I mean, I agree with that. It's, it's, or, it's Or at least, so as I understood his argument, like the 1619 Project is sort of almost designed to think of this as so baked into our DNA mm. as a country, our origin, like our yeah. birth, that there's nothing we can do to change it. Yeah. And, and like, because it's telling this story of just relentless oppression and, and racism, you know, which of course is true to a large extent, it, 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 it skips over like all these successes yeah. and the people behind their successes. So like one of the things I was very surprised with, Fre Frederick Douglass is mentioned like once. Oh, uh, no, yeah. And Harriet, Harriet Tubman isn't isn't mentioned at all. A lot of these people, you know, the civil rights movement, the uh, just the civil war itself, like these things are are just get sidelined because they don't fit the narrative. Now, yeah, I, in defense of the 1619 Project people, like this is how it always is, though, right? Mm -hmm. You know, like why didn't we ever learn about the Tulsa massacre? What, yeah. You know, growing up, I never heard of that. And like, I mean, look at our country just uh, made Juneteenth a national holiday largely because we did an episode of the Atlanta episode yeah. <laughs> on I, Juneteenth. I, this, that's what this podcast uh, <laughs> achieves: social change, like real social change. It's it's all yeah. I remember reading a People's History of the United States and getting you know like as a whatever. I don't know, freshman in college and getting my mind blown. That like I don't, I don't think I had properly thought about history being told from the perspective of other people. Yeah, like they were just to me, they were just facts, and th those facts just spoke for themselves. And it's um, not like a new radical idea. Like no. history is written by the winners is essentially yeah. what you know this view as a kind of cliched truth that this view recognizes. Here's what gets me, which is I think that we have psychologically a hard time finding the sources of bad shit to be impersonal forces, like structural right. systems. Like we really, I think it's easy to find a vic I mean, to find the perpetrator and blame them and ascribe guilt. And so in looking at history, you look at now and you say, well, look, obviously the United States has suffered from like a terrible, terrible racism throughout its history. Let's find the people who were behind behind closed doors arguing that we should start a revolution because we wanted to keep slavery. And that's, that is to me one version of the, uh, let's, let's say that all of the bad shit that's going on now is due to the racism of white people. Like there, there's no, it's, it's just hard for us psychologically to accept the the more complex, impersonal, perhaps non-nefarious in the, in the sense that nobody, no individual is guilty of it. Right causes for a lot of the bad shit that's going on so so i think even autobiographically it's easy to point to the people who helped you or harmed you in your own personal history and it's like you don't pay that much attention to all of the other sort of random shit that had to be going on for it to happen yeah 
So I think that's definitely part of it. Like we want to blame an agent or agents, even if it's ourselves. I also think though that it's another one of those things where, you know, it's easier. It's easier to have like an implicit bias seminar than to actually make big changes to the way police departments are funded. And one of the things like the New York Times, which is doing this radical revision of history, when it comes to something that actually would affect the structures as they are, and not just some history curriculums, maybe, you know, just the way people talk about or understand their history, but actually something that would that would change, then they jump ship, you know, or at least they're a lot more tepid about it. Um, yeah. yeah. It's all these kind of symbolic reckonings rather than like, okay, let's go through and see how we can fix these institutions that are privileging us and that are making us uh, successful and wealthy. Yeah, it's it's incredible as you say this. I'm thinking to myself, have I ever talked to a single person as radically, you know, on whatever side of the political aisle, like as we can get in our universities, has anybody ever told you that that diversity training seminar really hit the spot? <laughs> no. <laughs> like, I've never heard it said. And I wonder what the people who are running these things yeah. are thinking about, because I have to believe that they think that they're making a difference. Yeah, there has to be some like weird class of people that think this is important, healthy, and, like, the benefits outweigh the costs of it. And that it's actually, like, improving things. It's, like, a significant step towards addressing injustice. Right. Well, if Lincoln would have just done some more diversity and inclusion training seminars, maybe he could have avoided the whole Civil War. We should talk about the paper, right? And have a little fun because it's very serious for uh, an opening segment. But I actually think it, it relates to exactly what we're talking about, which is this idea that whiteness is kind of a disease. Parasitic whiteness renders its hosts' a- appetites voracious, insatiable, and perverse. So it's do- and, and these deformed appetites particularly target non-white people. So it's doing two things, right? Again, it's focusing on the individual and their disease of whiteness instead of, like, larger social structures. But then it's also, like, making it sound like it's pretty much, like, once you have it, you know... Uh, yeah, we can give you some treatment, but we're... <laughs> it's like herpes. It's, yeah. it's like you can manage it. At, at best. <laughs> at best, you know. So it's almost like all these things are just geared towards just saying, there's nothing you can do. We can't change it, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, before we dive into some mockery of this, I, the one thing that struck me was that this person, uh, Donald Moss, who wrote this article in yeah. this journal of... Uh, analytic psychiatry that something like psychiatry it's like an anal like a psychoanalysis uh, journal is it a real journal like is this it's a real journal but it's like i i looked it's like 130th out of 140 in impact factor for all psychiatry journals and it's just freudian psychoanalysts like this these people are are batshit people who you know like if you read some of what he wrote like i'm sure most people just read the abstract because that's i think the juiciest bits but he gets sexual about this stuff. I want to read the opening too because it's hilarious. Oh yeah, our, our, he's talking about our unruly sexualities exert a constant pressure to eroticize the bodies and beings of strangers, transgressively aiming to defy the wall to integrate those bodies and beings to take them in. But the rogue sexualities of parasitic whiteness add to that. Yeah, this well, like no. deep, deeply Freudian uh, sexual 
like this is just to me the stuff that I I've come across. It's just crazy that nobody would pay attention to ever. But this thing, this is the most impactful paper that this guy will ever write in his life, just because alt right yeah. Twitter or centrist it's, Twitter, you know, have right. a fun time. And, and we don't have any idea whether this guy is like right, like just some crackpot, or if this is something that is like oh, uh, no, he's like a he has been publishing for probably whatever thirty years, like these weird papers. Right. Like not just on on whiteness, but like a whole, you you know, he has like a long and storied career. But so he says, um, I want to read this opening because it's. Yeah. So he says uh, that he's writing about uh, two positions. Um, each position, inside and outside, offers an irreducibly distorted view. The one by the limits of sincere introspection, the other by the limits of theorized observation. The two perspectives turbulently converged during a recent experience in South Africa. We dropped off a black woman hitchhiker at her ramshackle township home. One of hundreds we could see all jammed together, helter-skelter, on a barren, cut-off, underserved piece of land. Apartheid segregation still firmly in place. Back at the hotel, we spoke to one of the staff about how troubled we'd been by what we had seen. The young woman responded without hesitation. Well, she said, it's really simple. They have their houses, we have ours. She spoke with a serene confidence, pulling us in, indifferent to whatever resistance we in our silence, <laughs> in our silence must have felt. They have their houses, we have ours. That sentence, and especially that word, we, repellent and implicating, inspires haunts and deforms what follows so i mean like this guy takes a hitchhiker drops her off in her house goes back to his fancy hotel and is like <laughs> furious that the staff the people who are like serving him uh on this like trip so that he can just sort of write about his exotic yeah. interaction with 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 dark-skinned people and he's pissed that she was probably like yeah like I don't want to talk with you about this right now <laughs> and, like it's unfucking believable like this guy like how can you not hate him just after reading that dude it's <laughs> it is the weirdest weirdest um, combination of extraordinarily tone deaf privilege yeah. and like throwing themselves on the pyre to like be like I apply for forgive me for my whiteness this is terrible and parasitic but but like not even me because I no, it's, no. it's it's the it's the people waiting on him <laughs> that like you know they're the real villains here right like they yeah. uh, with their word we repellent and implicating um, in fact they like. What she said, probably to just, like, get away from him <laughs> and his, like, creepy wife, he said it deforms what follows. Like, it's actually, like, affecting his writing, her indifference, the cruel indifference that she had. <laughs> okay, I want to read something, too. <laughs> no, I guarantee you most people did not get this far into this article because it's, no. it's crazy. But he does, you know, he's, he's giving these case studies of, uh, like, therapy. Um, These are people who have parasitic whiteness. I don't know uh, because, like, uh, honestly, uh, he lost me in his discussion of this because I don't even know how this particular example, uh, how he brings it back to anything about whiteness, but I have to read this. Case two, a woman in analysis is speaking of her growing disgust at her male partner. She can barely tolerate his neediness, his insistence that they always be together. Increasingly restless and sexually unsatisfied, she has begun to threaten either affairs or a breakup. 
Her partner responds forcefully and repeatedly with an image that has long been a presence in their relationship. He says to her, this is not you speaking. I know you love me. It's the pink monkey you have inside you. That's what's talking. That monkey is crazy, wild. You can't control it. You need me to keep it under control. (laughs) The patient has a history of profound psychiatric disturbance. The idea of losing control terrifies her. For years, terrified, she has joined with her partner in working to keep the pink monkey under control. The pink monkey, a dangerous animal, demeaned by color, names what she and her controlling partner agree is an invasive humanoid presence, the incarnation of a mad, dysregulating primitivity located not outside where it belongs, but instead deep in her interior. <laughs> I don't... Is, that, I, is, is this real? <laughs> what? Is, is it her clip? <laughs> the pink monkey? <laughs> the pink uh. monkey. It's... So this is why, like, my initial reaction was, why it's is anybody... a little anybody... boy's penis. <laughs> yeah, if you keep reading. <laughs> that people were sharing this makes me just, like, think, uh, like, you can find whatever, you know, you can go find crazy shit in journals and share it. Like, it's just this one happened to hit this nerve. <laughs> like, it, does he kind of admit that he then, like, had an affi- like had sex with her? <laughs> I, I, I don't know. Because... He he describes like her initial exuberance at finding herself happily aligned with an image that had long seemed an alien threat fades in the sessions immediately following. I say that she might feel that I had aligned myself with the pink monkey, had enticed her into sacrificing her partner's insistence on sane regulation in exchange for joining me in unlimited excess. This picture of me as a malign seducer reminds her of the Robert De Niro character in Cape Fear. A killer who entices... What? First of all, <laughs> what does any of this have to do with... I think he's definitely just saying, like, I fucked her. And, like, <laughs> and over said, five years. She said, I kind of look like Bob De Niro. <laughs> yeah, she said, exactly. <laughs> I had the the animal sensuality of a, of a Robert De Niro. <laughs> the pink monkey had been transformed. Like, this is just crazy. It's just crazy. But what does this have to do with white? No, I don't... It, I don't know because honestly, like I couldn't, I could not keep my attention on any thread in this, this kind of clinical work, dismantling perverse structures organized around an epistemology of entitled dominion turns interior vertical maps into interior horizontal ones. This is, this is like sideways music, but like worse as such, this work eliminates at least one psychic receptor site for parasitic whiteness. Like what? It does seem, the abstract is funny because the abstract seems like, which is all that anybody's read. I couldn't even get it until you <laughs> sent it to me. The abstract seems designed for like Tucker, Carl, Tucker Carlson to um, yeah. to just have a field day. Like just culture war. <laughs> exactly. You know, uh, I wonder if this guy would just like one day was like, holy shit, I'm getting a ton of downloads on my paper. Sweet. <laughs> I'm finally making a difference. <laughs> Finally, take a crack at this parasitic whiteness. <laughs> we could, like, you know, have a vaccine against whiteness and really just, like, you know, light up like a light a fire <laughs> under this whole fucking. Uh, All right. Anything more to say about um, critical no, just, race theory? Just apologies for getting a little serious in the intro. <laughs> Everyone, chill out about it. Obviously, but. We'll be right back to talk about Lori Paul's views on transformative experiences. Today's episode is brought to you by one of my favorite sponsors, Wine.com. Wine.com is the better way to buy wine. Whether you want to get one of those fruity Chardonnays or Sauvignon Blancs that 
Pizarro likes, those kind of wine mom wines that he loves, or the more robust and hearty reds that I like, wine.com is a fantastic way to get those bottles into your house and into your tummy. You know, in this day and age, there's still this wide misconception that you can't purchase wine and even spirits online and have them delivered to your door. Well, you can. Wine now in every state and the harder stuff, the hard alcohol in a bunch of them. Wine.com allows you to learn, explore, and purchase all from the comfort of your home on your time without the need to stand in the wine aisle looking clueless, trying to make sense of label after label. And here's the thing, you might think that shipping would be expensive, but Wine.com offers unlimited free shipping with their stewardship membership. Um, For only $49 a year, Wine.com offers unlimited free shipping to any address. You can use your membership to send gifts throughout the year to family and friends, to, to us if you want. Shipping is free every time. Wine.com is the world's largest wine store. You will not find a bigger or broader selection of wines anywhere. They offer expert guidance with extensive free professional ratings and tasting notes. They have a five-star Wine.com app on iOS and Android, which allows you to scan any wine uh, or liquor label to view pricing, professional ratings, and tasting notes no matter where you are. So go to Wine.com slash badwizards. Wine.com slash badwizards and get $50 off your first order. That's quite a deal for our listeners. Once again, wine.com slash badwizards and get $50 off your first order. Thanks to wine.com for sponsoring this episode. Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. This is the predictable time in the episode where we like to take a moment to thank all of our dear listeners for all of their support and communication with us. We very much appreciate it. Um, I, you know, Tamler, you were gone, like out in the middle of nowhere. So I had to sort of keep up the Reddit argument mantle. So I got in mm-hmm. a couple of Reddit arguments with people. Um, I saw. I saw <laughs> when I came back, all of a sudden you're like. <laughs> I'm like super, I got to say, super thoughtful on my part. In the octagon. <laughs> Grappling yeah. with all these uh, Reddit guys. Uh, yeah, it was about, what What was it about? Um, we got in a discussion, uh, somebody accused me of having you know some sort of depth psychology accusation of not wanting to talk about the truth of the no self view of buddhism and how oh yeah <laughs> and so a little right. defensive but. and that you were attributing oh yeah, Bo- yeah like parfit to parfit's view like you weren't acknowledging that 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 was actually the buddha. that was just actually the buddha yeah yeah and i was yeah. like, like Parfit and the Buddha are slightly different, I'd like to think, or else you would have been willing to talk about the Parfit this whole time. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it wouldn't. You wouldn't have to bribe me to talk about <laughs> right. it if he was the Buddha. Yeah, but it was a fun discussion, and it actually, uh, it actually entertained me on a couple of days there, where I was uncharacteristically bored to death. I just had nothing to do on a couple of days. Um, productive discussion. It was productive that's, discussion. That's edifying. What, edifying. Yeah, and they were really nice people. So. 
Um, if you would like to uh, engage in conversation with us or just reach out to us, you can easily do so. We're, we're not hard to find. Verybadwizards at gmail.com. You can email us. You can tweet at us at verybadwizards or at Tamler and at Pease. You can also jump in and start shit with us on Reddit if you go to our subreddit, which is reddit.com slash r slash verybadwizards. And if you just want to follow passively, check us out on Instagram, uh, rate us on Apple Podcasts, listen to us, subscribe on Spotify. Um, <laughs> what was that face? Well, just that you're saying like passively, like you're almost well, you know, like, it's, not, it's like pejorative, we're like not, insulting. It's like if you just want to be a bystander in life, you can go to, you can follow us on Instagram. All you want is to see <laughs> some cool posts. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. You run the Instagram. Do people talk to right. you? Right. Exactly. Uh, I was taken aback and hurt by that. <laughs> uh, Sorry. If you would like to be an active, active participant in the Instagram. Uh, if you just want to watch life pass you by like the <laughs> Guy Nikiru, you can follow us on Instagram. <laughs> uh, yeah, do that. It's, I mean, that's the, the the wonderful thing about Instagram is you're not forced, you're not dragged into conversations <laughs> justifying your psychological <laughs> existence. But yeah, we really we really appreciate uh, all the ways in which you guys reach out to us. We read everything that you write. Um, never forget that. Um, and yeah, thank you for taking the time. Yeah, thank you. And if you would like to support us in more tangible and active ways than just following us on Instagram, you can become one of our patrons. We love our patrons. We have some ideas. We're going to be getting together in what, a few weeks? Yeah. So we're planning to record not only some main episodes, but some bonus episodes. Also, um, I'm prepping for my big episode where I convinced David to believe in ghosts. Yeah, uh, you're watching all kind of like haunted house uh, documentaries on. <laughs> watched all three Conjurings, <laughs> so I'll, I'll, I'll be armed with that ammunition. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway, yes, you can join us at at uh, a bunch of different tiers. At I believe the lowest tier, you get um, all of our episodes ad free, and then you also get access to all the volumes of Dave's Beats. Uh, you get bonus episodes for $2 and up per episode, $5 and up per episode. You get access to our Brothers Karamazov series, which we have to, I think, make a little clear how you access that. Yes, we, we love you all. We're thinking of some other tiers that we, uh, we have in mind and some other bonus stuff that we might give all of our patrons. So we really appreciate that. You can also go to give us a one-time or recurring donation on PayPal. If you don't want the, to deal with Patreon, you can buy some of our merch, either our coffee cups or our awesome shirts. Um, all of this is available at the Very Bad Wizards support page. And, um, and finally, yeah, thanks to everybody, even to the Reddit people who are... Uh, can't believe that we didn't mention a nature article in our opening <laughs> question. Uh, I love that stuff too. I think it's great. I think it's very funny. It means they think highly of us. They respect us they enough respect to complain. Us. That's right. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about transformative experience. 
since you're both like a really good friend and also like a, a staunch critic of Lori <laughs> Paul's view, maybe exaggerate uh, both. Exaggerate <laughs> both things. <laughs> maybe maybe tell us about her view. Yeah. So uh, I I am friends with Lori, and I've heard her talk about this two or three times. <laughs> so that's my defense for not having read the full book. Um, but we read the Pricey where she summarizes her book, and also you linked to an article. Where is that? I'll put that link to brain pickings, brain pickings um, that sort of summarize her view. But I think it's not a hard view to to get across. The, the summary, I think, is is easy. So Laurie starts out by arguing or by saying basically like, look, there is a, a natural way that we have when we are making choices about our life. And that is to assess those the options and use our imagination to project ourselves sort of into like, what would it be like if I chose this? Or what would it be like if I chose that? So into these like possible futures. Um, but for certain choices, she argues, uh, that involve dramatically new life-changing experiences, we know so little that our imagination and what she calls our epistemic capacities are limited. As we can't, we can't use the normal way of sort of projecting with our imagination into these different options because we know so little about these experiences and what would uh, be involved in making these decisions. So this is what she thinks is the case for what she calls transformative experiences. These are the kinds of experiences that are radically new to the agent and that change her or him in a deep and fundamental way. So she, she says these transformative experiences, she means, are transformative in a couple of ways. One is that they're epistemically transformative. They teach you something that you could not have learned without actually having experienced the thing. And they're personally transformative. They, they change you in, in a way that you would not be able to know that it would change you. So I think this is her key point and what we'll talk about because this is where I, I, I start to have some disagreement. But she's relying on this idea that the way in which we make our decisions uh, rationally, this normative choice theory, is that you ass assess the value and the probability of outcomes when you're making these decisions. And she thinks that with transformative experiences, by their very nature, you can't use that model. The decision theoretic model breaks down. And that means that we have to think about how we make these decisions in entirely new ways. And so we could talk about the examples because I think the examples are just a lot easier. But Yeah, so like as a contrast case, like do you want to go to Japanese, have Japanese food or pizza or something tonight? Like that's one where you can kind of imagine like which one you're more in the mood for. Right. And there's no real problem of using that kind of normal intuitive model that probably is overstated that we use even for small decisions. But like you could, it still just makes sense in light of that. Yeah. yeah. There's an interesting, as I was reading this, I was thinking about this. There's a, there is the claim that that is how our decisions are made that like we sort of naturally get into this, like assessing probabilities and values. And then there's the claim that we can't do that or, or the claim that we're consciously doing that as a strategy to make decisions. So it might right. describe what actually happens when we're making the decisions um, without actually capturing the phenomenology of those decisions, but uh, or the other way, the other like way. it might, like it might just be kind of more epiphenomenal than we think. These, That's right. uh, deliberations. That's right. right. So, 
yeah, but but in any case, that model makes sense. Like setting that aside of whether this is even a model that makes sense for the kinds of s- smaller decisions uh, that we might w- make, where to go on vacation, you know, what to eat, what movie to watch or whatever. There are these other kinds of decisions and like two prime examples are having a child and becoming a vampire where the idea is that once you have it, you will be like a different person and your desires, your values will have changed in ways that you can't currently understand because you haven't undergone that experience. Right. So what you value now in order to make your decision like your values might be so radically different after the thing that like yeah. you in retrospect you realize that it was not at all something that you went into knowing right yeah. it's like so having a kid for example you might worry oh well i'm not going to want to go to all the their uh, little graduation ceremonies or something like that because it sounds annoying and actually it's maybe a bad example because a lot of those things are kind of annoying <laughs> but the <laughs> but you know, once you become a parent and once you become like these things become so important to you that you you might look back and think, I can't believe that I, this was a con for me. Right. This was in the con list of having a kid. That makes no sense to me now in light of actually having had the experience of having a child. Right. And moreover, like you can't like the things that you maybe they're still cons and maybe they're even still cons weighted in the same way as before. But now you have a new feeling that is weighted so heavily that the other ones seem like meaningless in, in retrospect. Like now you're like, well, I want to be with my kids so much that I, I could not have anticipated that that would outweigh all of my annoyances at going to their things. And there might just be higher order desires that you don't have anymore that right. you had before you had the kid. Right. Like you want to be able to just on a dime, just, you know, leave the city that you're in like and do be some able below to do and go to some strip. And then once you have the kid, you're like, that does not even tempting <laughs> right, anymore. Right. Because no, I don't want to just abandon my kid. That's not even a temptation. That's not even like just a value that's overridden by the joy of having a child. It's just you don't have it anymore because right. you're a different person. So like I'm curious as to what you find objectionable about this because aside from not loving the vampire example, because it's I actually you know, like the vampire example even more. <laughs> but yeah, but that's more like a rhetorical objection that I have. Like I think that doesn't, I don't know, help us understand the the view as well as a real life example, like having children. But um well, but anyway, like what do you cause this seems like totally right to me and like like I was really I haven't looked at this stuff, but when I read about it and I read a little bit through the book, I was like like this gives me hope for philosophy. This is what philosophy can do, even though it's it's simple, but it's pretty profound, and it's it it gives us a whole new lens to understand big life decisions and like how to talk to other people about them. And so yeah, yeah but you but you hate it. <laughs> no, I like it. So <laughs> I like there. What I like about it is that it is introducing into the conversation the the what I think is true psychologically about many of these decisions that we make, which is that they are changing us in such a dramatic way that, that our, um, our desires and our values are drastically different after them before. Um, there's a few things that, that I don't like that much about this whole approach. And one is the hanging the importance of this on what it says for rational decision-making 
gets to a version of this, basically, where she says, when you're deciding whether or not to have a child, having a child is so transformative that all of the mechanisms that you would use in a rational way to make a decision about something else, like to give your Japanese food or pizza, um, that you can't use them anymore because uh, they, they don't work, because you'll be so changed. But the, the truth of the matter is that we get tons of information from our social world, from others, from variations of similar experiences that we've had in the past that, that I think allow us to make a perfectly, not perfectly rational, because no decision might be that, but there's not, they're not that much more challenging than these other decisions. That, that you, make, you make the decision based on the information you have. So somebody says, well, I don't know, what's it like to have a kid? I say... Like Paul Bloom told me once when I was in grad school, um, it's just like it's like one one kid is like having four dogs, <laughs> like, and in that example, he communicated to me something like the amount of work that would be involved, uh, or he would say, I remember him complaining a lot about having uh, uh, his kids when they were little, and I'd say, oh, it sounds like it's not worth it, and he'd be like, no, it's like the most intense love I've ever experienced, like it's totally worth it. That's something. That's information. Like, I'm not stupid. Like, I know what... But I don't think like... she denies that. Like, if you... Like, well, so in the book, she says, I will not argue you can't get information from the testimony of others when you make such choices. You can. But I will argue that such guidance only goes so far for the information... But that's for every decision. Right. But, like, I think it's like you're overstating the... Like, that thing that Paul Bloom said about the four dogs, uh, like, that wouldn't ring true for me. Like, it didn't Maybe seem not, when but I had... That doesn't matter, right? Like, what matters is... No, but it does, like, well, what, because... Well, like, it rings true I, for me, but that's right. not the point of what I'm saying. The, like, I understand, but I'm saying, like, that that this idea that you can, through these metaphors and through what other people tell you, like, get a real sense of, of what that means, I think you're overstating it, even when compared to, like, somebody describing, like, if you want to go camping at this place, here's what you know, here's what you can expect versus if you want to go to the beach. And, right. So which, you know. which leads me to, let me bolster why I think um, what I'm saying is, I, I, I think a criticism that, that of this work, that it's not as trivial as you say, because I think that she's hanging the importance of these, the weight of these decisions on this normative theory and the implications that it has for rational decision-making. She's not just saying, hey, some shit is harder to know about than other shit. Because if that's all she were saying, like, of course. Like, well, she's of course, not, right. I right? agree. So like she's a difference saying, in kind. Yeah, she's the saying it's a in difference kind. in kind that threatens the process by which we make decisions. And I think it's the difference in quality. Like, I don't know what the pizza is going to taste like or the Japanese food is going to taste like. And what muddles it is, I think, she introduces the Frank Jackson Mary experience, which is, you know, the 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 neuroscientist who's never seen the color red, um, even though she knows everything about wavelengths and how color works, she's never actually had the phenomenological experience. If you're going to that, then like... <laughs> Thus dualism. Like that is something so basic about phenomenology, which is like, I don't know what the next sip of my wine glass is going to taste like. Like that's just true. There's a huge divide there. Right between, yeah. like I've never experienced the third sip of this glass of wine. Um, right. Either all decisions are kind of like that, or these other ones are just a difference in 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 quantity of uncertainty. 
right? And we make like the, I don't think the decision process is that threatened. You just might be less optimal when it's, you're going in blind. Yeah. I actually don't have a strong view on whether it's best to describe this as more of a spectrum versus like a difference in kind. And you have to take a radically new model to a decision-making model to these kinds of decisions. I think in the end, it might be just a question of like how how big on the spectrum are these is the uncertainty like how much more uncertain how much more of your sort of values are going to be altered right um in a way that like it makes sense to say that this is a different a whole different kind of decision yeah. than these other decisions that- and yeah and i don't know like Well, that's why my disagreement is actually like quite minor because everything that she says about these decisions, I think is true. My, my disagreement is it's more like in order to pitch this as truly important for the way we think about decisions, then I think she had to hang, like put her hooks into rational decision-making. I don't think she needs to, I think psychologically and philosophically, this is a super interesting and important point um, that I think we are overconfident often in the sort the information that we have about making these decisions. And only in retrospect do we realize, like, we didn't know shit yeah. about what we were We doing. didn't know shit, yeah. right. Yeah, so, like, I think this is really healthy. I happen to know, so this is one of my brother's friends who, who listens to this occasionally, so he may hear this. But he, he is, he's somebody that, like, tries to go uh, into decisions in a very rational way. Like he makes pros and cons <laughs> list. He tries to kind of just assess things in light of reason. You would love this guy. You would get along with him really well. Does he work at GiveWell? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so he, his wife wanted a dog first and he was very resistant to that because he thought of all the different like pain in the ass things that would be to get a dog and all the ways it restricts their freedom, their ability to go on trips. It's like a, they fourth, got a, it's dog. a fourth of a kid. Just tell them. Just tell them. <laughs> right, right. The Paul Bloom formula. Like, so then they get a dog and, and it's the best thing ever. And yeah. he can't believe that like he ever had any, any objection to having a dog <laughs> because it's awesome. I think that was more the kind of thing that you're talking about where he just underestimated in his pro con like right. pros and cons analysis, just the joy that you get from having the dog. But then the same, they go through the same process with the kid, and he's very resistant to that. <laughs> and they recently had a kid, and again, he's just like, oh my God, this is awesome. You know, this is so amazing. And so, uh, so yeah, like I think like that's, you know, for somebody like this to have this perspective where, no, your model doesn't apply here. You think it can apply here. And, you know, in, in both cases, there are a lot of, there's a lot of time that, that, that this stuff could have done earlier if it hadn't been for this model dominating uh, right. my friend's thought right. so much. So I think it's really health, healthy to think of it as just such a radically different kind of decision that you have to put these other kind of rational ordered things aside. Now... But- the idea that you need to adopt a new framework and especially to have epistemic humility, as she says at the end, that's really, I think, important and, and right. This episode of Very Bad Wizards is brought to you by NordVPN. What's a VPN? A VPN is a virtual private network. It's a service that protects your internet connection and privacy online by creating an encrypted tunnel for your data. It allows you to protect your online identity. It hides your IP address, allows you to use public Wi-Fi hotspots, knowing 
in the security of knowing that uh, nobody can um, capture your information while you're doing that. And uh, as we've said many times, one of the big benefits of NordVPN, especially for our listeners, is that you're able to access your favorite content no matter where you go. So as the world is opening up, as, as we're allowed to travel more and more, some of us uh, more than others, um, we're going to be in other countries where we might want, maybe in our downtime in between sightseeing, might want to access all that sweet, sweet content that we have at home. I know I subscribe to like five streaming services and they really do not allow you to access them in many different countries. But with NordVPN, you can access that content anywhere. You can change your virtual location with a single click. So depending on whether you're on a desktop app or an uh, um, Android or iOS device, you can easily change your virtual location with a single click. You can choose from over 5,300 servers across 59 countries. You can even use it to find streaming platforms at a lower price if you just sign in uh, from a different location. You can avoid buffering. It's not like it used to be. Um, there's no throttling of bandwidth. Uh, with one click, you'll be watching a streaming service just as if you were not connected to the VPN. It's something that's changed quite a bit since I first started trying to do this. So... If you're interested in uh, securing your internet connection, accessing your content anywhere, go to NordVPN slash VBW or use the coupon VBW and you'll get a two-year plan plus a bonus gift of four extra month. But that two-year plan is actually at 73% off. So it's a great deal. Just go to NordVPN.com slash VBW and you'll get a special summer plan for our listeners it's 73% discounted off of the two-year plan, plus four months free. Our thanks to NordVPN for sponsoring this episode of Very Bad Wizards. But, you know, so here's, like, I think the, the interesting cases, I agree with what you said, um, the interesting cases to me are the ones where you know, you know, par part of this definition of transformative experiences is that your preferences change. So uh, you walk around and you see people who have had kids all of a sudden be like, oh, it's amazing. It's the most incredible thing. And you're like, you could look at this as some version of, you know, like face-sucking aliens who've controlled, started controlling the minds of people. So like the mm -hmm. minute they start, they say it's great. But you're like, no, there's something really deeply suspicious. Everybody was against it until it happened. And now they're all like for it. Like, <laughs> right. Stepford wives. Kind yeah, of Stepford exactly. wives kind of thing. I don't, yeah. I just don't trust when you say that it's amazing. Like, I feel like there's a lot of maybe cognitive dissonance surrounding being a parent where you justify all of the hardship and now you say that it's amazing, but I don't know. Like, I don't. Or that it's changed them. This is, I think, the scary thing about these kinds of choices, which is that it's, it's not that they're telling themselves some false story. It's that they've changed so much that it's a true story. You know? Right, right. It's like I'm trying to think of the right sort of sci-fi thing, like the the yeah. where where like everybody's doing something and the like dwindles down to like only one or two people who realize that everybody has been sucked into this, like whatever. And well, like or maybe like Alcoholics Anonymous or something like that, where you go through this like process, which is a little weird, and you might think, like I would think, would be really just tough to stomach at every level, and yet like. <laughs> you come out of that, you're a different person, but I think a lot of people, like, it's, 
they're, they embrace what they've become. Yeah. But then there's always this question of, well, well was that brainwashing or was it, you <laughs> yeah. know. Like religious uh, transformation. Are they different? Yeah. Yeah, yeah or yeah. religious transformation. Yeah. 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 It's, so I, I guess one of, the, one of the things, so imagine that some people went through an experience and they unequivocally, let's say it was a transformative experience, like they really did not know what it would be like. Um, but they all say, it's terrible. Don't do it. Yeah. There is a case where I'm like, well, yeah, a rational decision is just listen to those people. Right. Right. Like, and transformative or not, I feel like in those cases, the evidence the te- of, the, of testimony, as you like to say, um, has, <laughs> has, <laughs> has rational weight. <laughs> um, so, yeah. so I don't think it's that threatening by dint of it being transformative. It's that threatening to rational decision making. It's no, no, no. But I, I don't think her point is that like if everybody's unanimous you still against something, like. that's good information. It doesn't mean that you understand what it would be like to no. to make that choice. It just means that you have enough evidence that like it's probably not that's something that you're going to like. Right, but but that's why that's that's why I think my point is actually quite limited to her claim that this threatens traditional modes of decision making. Whereas like no, it's just a different kind of evidence, right? Like going on a roller coaster. I was one of those kids who was super scared. I did not want to go on roller coasters. I did not want to like all the way up until probably eighth grade when my Damani finally convinced me to go on one. I fucking loved it. I went on it like 20 times that day. Right. Um, and I think I didn't know what it would feel like to be on a roller coaster, but Damani's testimony was just one piece of rational input into my decision-making process where it didn't seem that different. For, I don't know. And probably him calling you like a <laughs> like huge pussy. Or yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it probably was that. Uh, I love the, the vampire example because... Uh, yeah, let's talk about that. Yeah, because I think it, it illustrates an interesting point, which is nobody's been a vampire, right? I mean, you might believe that. <laughs> somebody has but, but <laughs> let's presume that nobody's actually been a vampire so the very ability vampires. to describe what life would be as a vampire and to pose it as a problem is making my point that like no there's actually like a lot of information we have about what it'd be like to like not i mean i've been reading Anne rice novels in my spare time so maybe i have a wealth of information but the all of the descriptions of the phenomenology of being a vampire, of of the the facts of the matter of daily living and the guilt you might have for drinking blood, all of those things are just, I don't, I, I just think it's just one of those cases where it's like a hard decision to make and sure you're different afterwards, but like you may, it's not hard to make a, an informed decision that's just as rational as whether I want to go to pizza or, or eat Japanese food. So, so like there you're denying that there is even a spectrum, it seems like. No, it's. No. And again, this is just about whether or not it threatens normative decision-making theory. Well, so here's what she says. Let me describe it because she has a colorful way of describing what it would be to be a vampire, you know, from in the abstract. With one swift painless bite, you'll be permanently transformed into an elegant and fabulous creature of the night. (laughs) You know what that's like. (laughs) As a member of the undead, your life will be completely different. You'll experience a range of intense new sense experiences. You'll gain immortal strength, speed, and power. And you'll look fantastic in everything you wear. You'll also need to drink animal blood, but not human blood. 
Although I don't know, like I don't know what vampire is. Like, I guess out. angel from Buffy or something <laughs> like that. But and, and avoid sunlight. Suppose that all your friends, people whose interests, views, and lives were similar to yours, have already be- decided to become vampires, and all of them tell you they love it. They describe their new lives with unbridled enthusiasm and encourage you to become a vampire too. They say, I would never go back. Life has meaning. It's, it's amazing, but I can't really explain it to you. You have to become a vampire to know what it is like. So I think her point, and I agree with this, although, again, I have my problems with using this kind of thought experiment where we really don't we don't know, uh, and I guess this is the point, but it's hard to even know whether this is a good example because we don't really have a sense of what being a vampire you, is. You've never worn a, a fabulous thing. outfit is what you're saying. I, I am not an elegant and fabulous creature of the night. And I actually never have been. So, you know, like, I think she's right. Like, at that point, your friends are not, like, reliable. It's sort of what you were saying about yeah. the Stepford Wives' parents. Yeah. It's like, you don't know whether you can trust them. You don't know whether they, they like, even if you think they're being honest, that they love their new lives, the point is, who is the they that's making these decisions right. right now? Who are, you know, and do you want to become somebody that is so different from what you are now? I think it is. It's it's not like you can make a pro-con list for that as much as you have to decide if you, it's almost a form of, not suicide, because that's overstating it, yeah. but a kind of like, I am moving to a new phase of life where I am going to be a different person. And do you want to make that leap? But it's a leap. It's a leap of faith. It's a Kierkegaardian leap of faith, I guess. <laughs> we should do Kierkegaard soon. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I get it. Like, But do you see why the, the Frank Jackson Mary example sort of throws this off? Because if if that's used as sort of a, a justifying way to say like, well, she didn't know what it was like. That point is just about like almost every phenomenological experience. So, right. And all of our choices will change our phenomenology in some way or another. Like they're, they're not that epistemically closed to us. Well, I mean, like it's some, sometimes it seems like you're saying that like, any choice is like a transformative experience in if, some if, sense. And sometimes it seems like you're saying that like these transformative experiences aren't all that transformative. I can still listen to a Paul Bloom metaphor and, and know and, and, know, and like, immediately, have that immediately know exactly what the last thing is. <laughs> exactly. um, yeah. No, no, I'm saying that that's the trap that she sets for herself. So if you use the Frank Jackson thing as a metaphor, then all decisions are, are not within this rational decision-making framework. If you say, no, you can, like, it doesn't matter that much. Like the third sip of your wine will be much like the second sip of your wine. Like, don't worry. Then, um, then I think then you're just accepting like a whole bunch of stuff is to a greater or lesser degree within some acceptably rational, like information that you, so, so long as somebody has experienced it and you can talk to them, like, right. And you not. recognize them. They seem in other ways, like the right. person that you knew. Right. They're That's not all like starry eyed and being like, oh, I love it here. <laughs> right. Exactly. That's why I don't love the vampire analogy. <laughs> Cause I really do think like, you don't know who you're talking to when you're talking to the vampires that used to be your friends, <laughs> but you know who you're talking to with Paul Balloon. You it's not like you change so radically when you have a kid that it's like your personality is completely altered. Right. I think it's not that much of a problem for someone like you who immediately found the value to be not at all in the implications this has for normative decision theory, <laughs> like decision theoretic frameworks. Like you, the value that you had with this is in all the senses, the value that I take from this. 
it's just that I think she oversells it by saying this has that many implications for how we make rational decisions. Well, so here's an interesting analogy, which she actually doesn't use as much in the book, but um, does mention and emphasize a little in the Precy. I know because I looked up Kuhn, but in the book, but the paradigm shifts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like, I actually like that analogy maybe better as a way of saying that it's not that you won't have information or you won't have, it's just that you'll have to completely reorient uh, your way of investigating this decision with information that you don't have access to and you really can't have access to. And, and that, you know, the way you approach decisions after that, at least in relation to this choice, will be too different for you to, like, really be all that informed about what you're going to do. And so there's, there is this, maybe it's not a difference in kind, but a big difference in on the spectrum of how just epistemically humble you have to be about this, how you have to realize that you don't know what you're getting into or whether this is good or bad. That that kind of pro-con model, it's much more effective for a certain class of choices, much less effective for this other class of, of life decisions. And if you recognize that, then how you describe it as a difference in kind or, you know, along the spectrum is not like that important to me because right. it makes, you know, it gives you a good example. And the truth is like, I've never been a pro con kind of person anyway. So that but shocks this, me. That shocks me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but like, there, but this sort of, I don't know, makes me, gets at, I think intuitively, or at least is a nice way of making me feel like I've been doing that for a reason, you know? Yeah. Well, so a couple things. One, I don't think this is the distinction I was trying to point to earlier. I don't think you need to consciously have pro con lists to actually be fitting the model for how we make this. Like you are making predictions in your head about what will or won't make you happy or whatever. Right. Like that. It's not necessary that you be doing that by making lists. But like if, if that's just what your computation boils down right. to, then it might be. Um, you're interested in the neuroscience behind it. <laughs> <Is> your temporal, <laughs> there's your, in your brain, your there's a pro side and a con side. <laughs> um, <laughs> but that's the, you're not, you don't have access no. to that. <laughs> um, the, the sort of conservativeness of your friend in making the decision, say, by getting a dog or getting a kid, um, maybe the very same processes have saved him from like terrible decisions like that it's maybe he's like just you know 98 for 100 on these so like you know your friend i have a friend who actually told me that he tried crack once and it wasn't tamler but um and he said no, i did try crack <laughs> yeah you did it was that like, you're not who i'm talking about and he said that like it scared him because it was he was actually a heroin addict um and he said the crack was actually so good to him that he never took a second hit because he knew that like he would just lose control over it. Um, but you know, like a bunch of crackheads are going to tell you how amazing crack is. <laughs> yeah. So, like, and only like three them. of them will be CIA <laughs> operatives. <laughs> um, but so I, I let's take the most extreme version of her claim, which I think is something like there are some decisions for which no, you have zero information of the sort that matters. And Did she say zero? No, no, no. Of the sort that matters, but, but like, the the important aspects of it, you have no access to. I think she wants to say. That I think she wants to say there is huge chunks of important information you have no access to. Not that you have no access to any important information. Right. So let's say you have whatever you know some just some yeah. really minimal sparse information like uh like 
that you might not even be sure about, like you said, about how it changes people's preferences so that you don't even know whether to trust them when they say it's amazing to have kids. What do you make your decision then on? Do you, you make it based on the little information you have, you don't, but let's just, for the sake of this, just say that the only relevant information is stuff that you don't know anything about. It sounds like flipping a coin would be just as good a decision-making process in those cases. But I think that for some, let's take to the extreme. And I remember talking to Lori about this. I don't remember her response because I was just too satisfied with my own question. But, <laughs> but Back in the days <laughs> of like just untrammeled white privilege. <laughs> and male. Male, white male, male privilege. Male, yeah. Yeah. Um, death is one of these. Like death is, is a transformative experience that we have zero real access to what happens. But I don't think that sort of my decision-making uh, process is threatened by that. I'm pretty sure that I don't want it. Um, it's not like a flip a coin, either I want death or not. Right, but I don't think, I think that's a straw manning her point to say that that would be an implication of her view that you should just flip a coin as to whether you want to live or die and like, or, or, or some other transformative experience. Well, I think it's a reductio, not a, not a straw man, <laughs> because I think that she wants to think that, wants to say that these are non-rational decisions. I think that, that there is a big chunk of it. Like, first of all, I think there's only some, like, there's only some of them that are put in the, like, basket of there's a chance you might say yes to this, there's a chance you might say no to this, right? Joining some sex cult where you're just going to be, like, sexually tortured um, in a dungeon for the rest of your life. Like, you don't know what that would be like, but you have enough information. Like, I think nothing that Lori Paul says is inconsistent with this to know that's just not in the basket of choices that it's possible that you want to say yes to. But, but seriously, why not? Because you have, like, it seems like an obvious example because of course you know what pain is like, and of course you know that you don't like pain, and of course you can ma like multiply the pain that you felt into that. But isn't that what we're doing for the positive things? Like it worries me a little bit about our position that it's only talking about like these amazing experiences that you should like having a kid or being a vampire, fabulous and elegant but creature of the night. I, I think her point still holds. If uh, if there are just a class of things where you know you don't like to be constantly in pain and constantly humiliated. <laughs> and so you, that's enough to say this is off the table, but there are other decisions, which some people, you know, choose to do other people don't choose to do the people that, you know, that it is a significant enough choice that you just have no idea, not no idea, but you have a very limited idea of how well that would suit you and who is the you that, that, um, that you will become once you make that choice. And so there, it's not that you have no information. You still, yes, you have some people like me saying having a kid is like not that, you know, it's not that, it's not that hard. It's pretty fun. Even in like when they're one and two, maybe cause I just had like a really easy kid, whatever, like you still have like people saying it. And so, you know, that it is something that a lot of people like a lot of people bitch about and it, and there's a lot of good parental relationships and bad ones and, you know, in the way that it affects me. It's not that that's not relevant information. It's just that there's also this big chunk that you just have no idea about. There's this big black hole in it. And that black hole makes the normal pro-con thing, the normal way you go about making decisions where there isn't that black hole, it, it just renders it 
at the very least, much less useful to you. And so you have to at least admit that this is going to be a leap of faith one way or the other. Right. So I think, I think you, you were all like, it almost seemed to me like you were making the points that I wanted to make, which was, yeah, there's plenty of rational, like there's plenty of information to make a rational decision, like about having kids that you have access to that. There is a, a like a big void of stuff doesn't mean that it's not no longer a rational process. It just means like I, it, it, it's still stuff that you have a lot of information about, right? Just like the person who can say, well, I know that I don't like being, you know, constantly penetrated with sharp objects in the sex dungeon. Um, but you, <laughs> I don't care how good the people who are in the sex dungeon say it is. Like, right. I just know that I don't want it. The same thing can be said about kids. Like they could say, you could say, I don't, I, I know that you say it's amazing, but I literally don't want to wake up at 6 a.m. every day for the for five years in a row or whatever. And so, like, I'll make that decision. It's just as rational in both cases. This episode of Very Bad Wizards is brought to you by BetterHelp. You know, the world has changed quite a bit since we started doing ads for BetterHelp. And one of the ways that it's changed the most is that we now know that we can do a lot of the things that we used to have to do in person. We can do them online. Um, and so it's sort of timely that we've been on this ride with BetterHelp this whole time. When they first started, it might have been a little weird to think about doing your therapy all online, but now it might be the best way to go. You can tap into professional, licensed, vetted therapists who you can trust. It's really the largest network there is of these online therapists. They can help you with a variety of issues, depression, anxiety, your personal relationships, trauma, grief, anger, and more. So with BetterHelp Therapists, you get the same profession, professionalism and quality that you would expect from an in-office visit, but with the ability to communicate how and when you want. Within 48 hours, you'll be up and running talking to a therapist who is uh, picked based on your needs. All you have to do is go to BetterHelp and answer a few questions that They'll help you find the right therapist to match with you. Again, you can do it over messaging or chat. You can do it over the phone. You could do video chatting. It's therapy when you need it in its most convenient form. So if you would like to make a change in your life, start by going to betterhelp.com VBW and you'll get 10% off of your first month just for being a Very Bad Wizards listener. I know a lot of you have done this already. We really appreciate that. Um, but if you're looking to start therapy at all, give betterhelp.com a chance. Go to betterhelp.com VBW and enter VBW at checkout. Let them know that you heard from us. Our thanks to BetterHelp for supporting this episode of Very Bad Wizards. I guess, like, I, I mean, I don't know. I'm not, you're hung up on this, you know, one is rational, one is not. I do well, because think, I think that, that's the, but, the thrust of her. I argument. agree, but like, uh, I think the, the, the part, the, the non-rational part of it is you have to go with your gut a little bit about whether you want to take a leap and do something that will transform you and the way you, the kinds of values that you take to a decision, you know, to future decisions and the kind of values that you, that you have and embrace. 
And because there is this big black hole of information you don't have, the information you do have isn't enough where there's an obviously rational choice one way or the other. And so it's just like, do you want to do it or not? And that's kind of a gut thing. That's kind of like, what does she describe it as? Like, a like, well, what are you saying when you say it's a gut thing? So like, I'll, like I, I'm fine with everything you said. It's just that you use the information you don't have and the rest is a leap of faith. I don't know that there is, like, when you say, like, you just go with your gut, to me, that sounds like you're saying that you trust some information that's going on in, like, whatever So here's, your gut is. here's the concluding sentence. The lesson I draw is that an approach to life that is both rational and authentic requires epistemic humility. Life is more about discovery and coming to terms with who we made ourselves into via our choices than about carefully executing a plan for self-realization. That's, like, I think... Like, I think I just agree with that. Like, it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, I, I don't disagree with that. But that's, I feel like, just like the feel-good end sentence of what what she builds up as a much more controversial thesis about, about rational decision-making. But there are these people who view life and life decisions as carefully executing a plan for self-realization, you know, like into... Uh, you know, this is what the self-help industry is kind of built. Um, this is how many people see themselves, you know, when they when they have a story about their life and the way they want it to go, and they think they just have to make this choice and this choice. It's all instrumental, um, and it's just not like... And pointing out that it's not like that and that you're going to have different paradigms that you approach each kind of decision based on, you know, where you are and what experiences you've chosen is a good thing to recognize. Just so you don't think you can, like, game the system of life with your pure reason, like with your just Kantian... Uh, if that's all if that's all I thought she had to say I would be like fine like that that we make forecasting errors or that our pro no, con lists aren't you keep aren't like, minimizing that forecasting errors is forecasting errors are less than what she implies that's very minimizing like the well, that's why I said if that's all she means right then like then it would be a minimal thesis but that's not what that sentence implies and her view implies yeah like I I hesitate to make that last sentence seem like the accurate portrayal of what she argues about rationality and like yeah i'm stuck on this rationality like i just don't think it's irrational to make my decision based on like four out of ten facts versus on seven out of ten facts or nine out of ten facts like i just think i make it with four because i have four there's nothing threatening about the decision making process you your values are going to change like this is the thing that i don't think you that i mean you acknowledge but that is threatening to this view that you can make rational choices based on your values about things that will ch radically alter your values in the future. And so that when you look back on it, a lot of that stuff, a lot of the, the four out of 10 facts or whatever that you thought you had turned out to not, they, they weren't even facts because you're not that person anymore. And you don't care about waking up at 6.30 in the morning to take your daughter to school. It's your favorite thing that you do in the day. You know, like it's it's a thing that you look forward to the most. And then the rest right. of your day is just drudgery. You mean a forecasting error? I mean, this is where you're just like, <laughs> I mean, look, if that's the point, like I didn't me, know. Like, if that's, if that's the, the point that you're making is that for some things you don't actually realize that like you might like it. Well, yeah, like I, I didn't know I'd like almond croissants before I tried them. What does that have to do with the rationality of the decision making process? So point, point me to something that she says that you object to. 
well, because I think I'm not understanding. She says, "Okay, the main problem with transformative decisions is that our standard decision models break down when we lack epistemic access to the subjective values for our possible outcomes. I don't think they break down." As a result, in cases of transformative choice, the rationality of an approach to life where we think of ourselves as authoritatively controlling our choices by imaginatively projecting ourselves forward and considering possible subjective futures is undermined by our cognitive and epistemic limitations. I don't think it's undermined. I think we all understand that we have more or less information under some conditions, and we go about our life saying, like, okay, I'm not quite sure whether I'll like the roller coaster, so I'm willing to take a chance on it. I don't think anything is breaking down. I think it's the same kind of decision that I'm making when somebody tells me, like, do you want to go to Ethiopian tonight? Like, I literally mean that in, in kind, if not, not in importance, but in kind, we're constantly making decisions with super limited subjective, uh, a super limited understanding of what our subjective value will be after those experiences. And there's nothing weirdly irrational or breaking down of the process. So... Again, it's it's very hard to it's very hard to discern how much we disagree about this because, like, again, I don't have a strong stance on whether you should describe this as a difference in kind or a difference in like a like a big difference on the spectrum of rationality and how much you can trust your rational decision making process. But it does seem like there is a big difference worth pointing out. There is a distinction between choices we make where no matter what choice we make, our values are going to be more or less the same. We'll be the same kind of person uh, one way or the other versus choices that we make where where our values, like higher order desires, all of this it w- will be will be transformed in ways that we currently don't like have access to how that will shake out. Like that is a, that is a distinction that's worth making. And it's, and it is a distinction in terms of whether you call it now irrational or just, I can't like, I can, I can say this is rational and take the few pieces of information that Paul Bloom has given me, but like, I I like, (laughs) but, and, and just make it based on that. But there's this huge black hole and, you know, a lot of that could turn out to be forecasting errors as you like to dismiss them as. So like, (laughs) I don't uh, know why you think that's dismissive. That's a huge, it's a huge thing that psychologists figured out, but yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure. (laughs) So, uh, but like, that's a big distinction that is, um, you yeah, know, like, that's, and then are we just quibbling about I, how to describe that distinction? Yeah, that's why over and over again I've been saying yeah. I think we largely agree on the importance of the the sort of understanding that these things are there. My only disagreement, I don't think you ever cared about this, like, or what she says are implications for for decision theory. Like, that's it. That's my only quibble. Right. Yeah, not which, about like whether or not it even because uh, honestly, like most things that are different in quality are just some arbitrary line that we make that are differences in kind. Right. So like, I think it's important, all the humility stuff, all of the stuff that she's talking about, like the, the importance of not thinking that you know everything that you're going to feel when you do it. I agree with all of that. I'm sort of stretching this out for the sake of argument here because it's fun to watch you get mad. But like, <laughs> I think mad. that there, <laughs> there is, no, I don't. but I think there is a core of this, like, if, if anything, I guess I can boil my, my claim down to this. Like, I think she straw man's rational decision theory in order to like tear something down, which right. is fine. Like it's, it's, it's a stupid, yeah. And I in might, some ways it's, the yeah. way I might agree with you is not that she straw man's decision-making theory, but she overstates its value even for like yeah, maybe smaller so. maybe decisions, so. you know? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, yeah with, I, right. Yeah. That's, that's a fair way of saying it. Um, and again, like, I actually think that like the value in this book, even though I didn't read it, is not in that. <laughs> I feel like I feel like she got 
she had to say something about decision-making theory because like, that's what you have to do. I think you can't imagine what it would be like to actually read her book rather than just <laughs> a pricey and see a couple of talks like seven years ago. Um, and so that's <laughs> what leads you to your misguided I knew, view. You know, when I sent you the pricey, I was like, you know, there's going to be this asymmetry. Like if you read any part of the book, you're going <laughs> to lord that over me. <laughs> And the truth is, I haven't had time to read very much of it. But we should have Lori Paul on, and yeah, I actually think she would be a great guest. Yeah. Um, In fact, we've always we've we sort of put off having this uh, as a topic because we always thought it would be fun to have her on, and then we just did it anyway because (laughs) we we needed a topic for this uh, for this segment for this episode. But um, I think in in the uh, sort of tradition that we try to keep of having guests come on and just talk about not necessarily like their shit like their book or their whatever we could probably have her on and she'd be a great guest to talk about anything i agree but given that you've been hating on her arguments and position this and i feel like she should have a chance to defend herself a little bit well i she should know that it's not personal (laughs) no you know um i feel like she is exactly the kind of person who would love to get in this argument so i welcome i welcome the ability to tear down Lori Paul's position to her face. I think that like, this is just, you know, agree with Dave or agree with me. I hope people think that this is like, you know, everyone shitting on philosophy, including me, like a lot of the time, like this is good philosophy and this is like a way forward, um, uh, you know, of a kind that I'm not sure psychology can point to these days. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm sure that there's, yeah. you have William James. So that was good. Yeah. I, I, I uh, agree that it's good philosophy. Um, what we could discuss is she has a whole book. She does metaphysics. She has a whole book on causation. We should just read that to discuss. With her. <laughs> That's where I jump shit. <laughs> <laughs> I understand I, causation as much as I need to before I die. <laughs> I like how, Poor philosophers. You guys are all forced to write like at least one or two really dry, boring books like on your area of expertise before you're allowed to just like write the book that you've always wanted to write. Are you calling Relative Justice a dry, boring book? I don't know. I've never bothered to read it. <laughs> the, the, the worst thing is that that's true even of the book that you wrote a forward to. <laughs> no, I read that whole book. Uh, I feel like I actually don't remember. It's a good question. I'm sh- I'm sure I read parts of Relative Justice, um, uh, if only out of duty. Yeah. <laughs> true Kantian duty. <laughs> no, I mean, obviously what you're saying is right to some degree. Like you have to go more academic than you would like. Yeah. It's weird, though. That came a lot easier to me then than it comes to me now. <laughs> Uh, you know, like I, I didn't feel like it was some massive sellout, like something that I was like, I actually felt like, oh, I'm actually, you right. know, now I'm sure there's some parts of it where I'll be like, oh my fucking God, how many acronyms are you going to do? That must be actually true in general. So I might be just wrong in my assessment. It must be that you're really excited about the specific topics that you have expertise in. Like, look at Paul. His first book was called How Ch- Children Learn the Meaning of Words, right? Like, it's just super narrow about that. Just um, on a really boring topic. But I'm sure he was super excited about it, right? No, like, I'm it, sure he was like, I was a actually just kidding. That. Like, how children, <laughs> that seems pretty cool, actually. Well, yeah. let's be honest. The title is much cooler than probably the research. <laughs> Dave's just admitting that he hasn't read any of our books, <laughs> any of like books 
everyone's books. I read, I, I admitted I've been reading Anne Rice's uh, Vampire novels. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I sent you Ishiguro, like, like four Ishiguro books. You haven't read any of them. <laughs> well, uh, you don't know what it's like to be me. So I'll leave it at that. <laughs> to be a, 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 a non-reading Philistine. Maybe <laughs> I would a, like it. To be an indigenous person <laughs> whose ancestors were raised. Well, th- this is, I was actually going to make this connection, but we should, we have to go. But like, uh, there is a, sim- there is a, like a connection between this and our o- opening yeah. segment, yeah, which yeah. is like in the same way. And again, I agree with both of it. Like, I, I think there is a way in which we can't understand the experience of being a black man or woman in America and, you know, our normal, like, decision making or just you know forms of evaluation break down a little bit maybe you would want to say no it doesn't we also don't know what it's like to grow up in iowa which you know i think i would agree with in part two but like i'm like there's also a truth to it that yeah yeah. there's also a connection with paul's argument about against empathy which is so what is the nature of information that we can have but i think importantly what is the most relevant information that we can have but i completely agree with you about like the subjective sort of impossibility of, of really, like all we can do is approximate based on our own experiences. That's why I'm not just, I'm not saying this to make fun of you. That's why testimony does matter in those cases where right. I just take, I have to take them at their word, um, whoever it is that their experience is what they say it is, because there's no way I can with any expertise talk about what it's like. Right. And, but, but or you have to give it more weight, you know, like a yeah. lot more weight. Um, than 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 you would for you know like this guy the the guy who wrote on having whiteness or like Robin D'Angelo or something like that <laughs> pink like, monkey they just don't slap my pink monkey <laughs> slap <laughs> I wonder if he just goes around like to like all these like four hundred dollar night hotels and just like just kind of clicks his tongue at the Why staff at South a- African woman want to talk to me <laughs> <laughs> these poor people. He's like on his third martini and he's telling them and he's just like, yeah. Okay, serious question. Yeah. If we could get that guy on, (laughs) would you be willing to talk to him? I mean, like if if we could just junk the episode, right? Like (laughs) if we didn't have to put it on, like I would be interested in talking to this person. Like is he, does he have a sense of humor? Does he get how just... like just completely cringy all of this sounds and also just insane just like batshit crazy Uh, here's the thing when you make that decision to have him on you don't know whether you're going to be convinced of his arguments by the end you might be full on like hating your whiteness (laughs) right we'll be telling like Paul and Yoel like no you don't understand like you've got to you've got to undergo his his analysis his therapy Uh, all right, on that note. <laughs> all right, join us next time on Very Bad Wizards. The
just a very bad wizard.